Welcome to Lost in the Library. This week's story was narrated by me, Tyler Martinez. It's the story of a young man who dies unexpectedly and then is granted a unique opportunity. It's an agnostic take on the afterlife and a nostalgic stroll down memory lane. The story itself is full of fond memories, some autobiographical, and others works of pure fiction. I won't tell you what is true and what is not, though. You can believe whatever you want. Originally, this tale of the afterlife was considerably longer. I had a lot more things I wanted to include, but ultimately, I decided against said things. It was running a little long, and... I didn't want to overstay my welcome on this, the first episode. If this story proves to be a success, however, I may just release the complete edition, the unabridged edition, as a bonus episode when the rest of this project is all said and done. Enough rambling, though. Let's get to the story. Nothing But Green Lights by Tyler Martinez I remember it. My last day on Earth, that is. Not everything about it. I mean, nobody remembers every second of every day. Or at least, most people don't, anyway. But I remember it as clearly as I would any other day. I remember getting up and getting dressed before heading out to the gas station down the street for a donut and a soda. I remember going to work, having conversations with co-workers throughout the day, and, you know, doing my job. Entering data into spreadsheets. Unremarkable me, sitting in my unremarkable cubicle, doing my unremarkably tedious and monotonous job for hours. I remember my lunch break. I had a ham and cheese sandwich. I never took lunches that required use of the office microwave. I never trusted the cleanliness of it. Plus, there was always a line, and I never wanted to waste my precious free time standing and waiting. I remember talking to Mike about the new Batman movie. He was excited for the possibility of a new Joker. I was less enthused about the idea. Do we really need a 100th version of The Clown Prince? No. No, we don't. Of all the things I could remember of the day I would cease to exist, however, 
It was my final moment that really stood out and hit me the hardest. The moment I died. I was walking to my car, not paying attention. I could lie and tell you this is a cautionary tale. I could tell you I was busy looking down at my phone instead of being aware of my surroundings. I could turn this into a preachy story or life lesson about how we will all die, clenching the technology that simultaneously keeps us connected and separated. I could tell you I was hit by an automated vehicle and relate to you the dangers of living in an episode of Black Mirror. I could tell you that, and this story could be that, but I won't, because it isn't. The fact is, I was just dumb. It was a Friday afternoon. I was happy to be out of work, looking forward to going out on a date with the cute girl I met at the bank just a few days before. And I just wasn't paying attention. In fact, my phone was in my pocket, my earbuds right there with it. I stepped off the curb without looking both ways, as my mother told me to do a million times before when I was a child. I stepped right off in front of a city bus. It was a strange feeling, dying. You know, they say your life flashes before your eyes the second before you die. Maybe that's true for some, but it certainly wasn't true for me. My last second was... weird. It didn't hurt like you would expect. To the people that witnessed it, I'm sure it happened so fast they all assumed I didn't have time to register pain. A blessing, really. But that's not how it was. It didn't happen fast. And it wasn't painful, either. Time slowed down. I mean, really slowed down. It was like the slow-mo guys caught me in their camera and decided to slow it down just a tad bit more. I could hear everything. My bones crunching, my muscles tearing, my internal organs compressing like tightly squeezed water balloons before popping with a loud, wet splash. The sound of my skull shattering inside my head was like the sound of a flower pot being broken underwater. The shards of bone working their way into the seams and folds of my brain sounded like a sharp knife cutting into a soft peach. I even heard my ribcage break. And when one of those bones broke into my lungs, it made a light pop, followed by a slow, deflating leak. I could feel it all, too. 
But it wasn't painful. It was like a pressure. Almost like a, a big hug. Not a super tight hug. Not a claustrophobic, help me, I can't move, please let me go, hug. But instead, a comforting hug. It felt nice, almost loving. The bone fragments in my brain tickled. I know, the brain has no nerve endings. It can't feel. But I'm telling you right here, right now, that when you're dying, everything you know or think you know of human biology is thrown out the window. The puncturing of my lung felt like a warm explosion within my chest. It was an intense pressure, like going up a steep hill in a car or reaching the high point of a roller coaster. The deflation of my lung was just the opposite, like going down the hill or descending on that rail. I felt a myriad of other things as well, but I won't bore you with the other more embarrassing details that often accompany death. I think you probably get the idea by now anyway. After I died, time returned to normal, and I found myself standing over my own lifeless body. I watched as the bus driver climbed out of her machine of death and destruction, watched as she approached my mangled body, holding me as though I was her own child, weeping and sobbing. I can't explain why, but... I actually felt worse for her in that moment than I did for myself. I was the one lying dead on the pavement, yet my heart went out to this person. I didn't care about myself anymore. Maybe because there just wasn't anything left to care about. Covered in blood, she continued to cry out for help. A doctor in the growing crowd of onlookers, a paramedic, or someone who simply knew what to do. She apologized profusely as she cradled me. She had nothing to apologize for. I even told her that, but of course my words were useless. Nobody could see the specter of my former self standing in the street, watching like everyone else. I was amazed by the fact that she held me so closely, so dearly, so tightly, despite the fact that I was a mess of broken bones, blood, sweat, and other bodily fluids. How do you recover from that? What must it be like to shower, to try and wash that trauma away? The crowd of people stood aside in shock and awe. Most of the people on the bus stayed on the bus. I wonder if they were expecting to make it to the next stop. A lot of people on the street, 
most of the people on the street, pulled out their phones. I assume they were texting their friends about what just happened, tweeting, making Facebook posts, or taking pictures, hoping to get a grisly image into the evening news. Eventually, the paramedics appeared. They declared me dead on the spot. The onlookers began to disperse, and life went on. Well, life for them went on. I stuck around until the ambulance left, as though I had a choice. Everything disappeared as my body was taken away. The world became dark, and before I knew it, I was alone. I don't know how long I stood in that black void. I don't know when I took a seat, but at some point I did. I found myself in the most comfortable chair I've ever sat in. Music began to play. Depeche mode. Dream on. Words appeared in front of me, like the credits of a movie. The cast of my life. An order of appearance. Dr. Harris. Dr. Fran Harris. Nurse number one, Whitney German. Father, Noel Sanderson. Mother, Marie Sanderson. The credits rolled for quite a while. It was literally everyone I ever met or even said hello to. I used to work in a busy convenience store where 200 customers in an 8- or 9-hour shift was nothing unusual. Sure, some of those were regulars, but the majority were strangers. Five years at that job really filled the credits. I can't imagine how long it would be if that was my career for 10 or 15 years, or more. The last person I met was Miriam, my date for the night. I wonder if she was upset when I didn't call or pick her up. She seemed nice. I bet she was pretty understanding once she heard the news. Do you go to the funeral of the guy you just met but never actually went out with? Hmm. Who knows? I guess it's immaterial at this point anyway. The songs changed quite a bit. It was like a Spotify playlist for my life was playing on shuffle. I was 36 years old. There was a lot of names to get through. I don't remember every song that played, but I remember I loved them all. The theme from that show, Detectorists, played. I can't remember the name of the guy that sang it. Johnny something, I think. Just Like Heaven by The Cure was one. I seem to recall hearing The Great Below by Nine Inch Nails as well. For the most part, they were all songs that reminded me I was dead. Oddly enough, however, the credits came to their conclusion with the theme from King of the Hill. I guess the powers that be wanted to end on a positive note. I don't remember standing up when the credits were over, but I must have because I was on my feet when the lights turned on. 
I was now standing in a long hallway. It was lined with doors. Each door had a small metal plate affixed to it. The first one read 1985 to 1986. I opened the door and peeked inside. It led to another hall lined with even more doors, each one with a specific date. The first door said March 3rd, 1985. I peeked in and, well, frankly, I wish I hadn't. It didn't even occur to me that I wasn't born until November of 1985. I saw a door. I opened it. I never thought life began at conception. But this door seemed to be claiming otherwise. The next door was labeled September 15, 1985. I peeked in and, again, I kind of wish I hadn't. It was moist and dark. I could hear voices, but couldn't make out any words. Honestly, it was kind of creepy. There were doors marked with every day of the rest of the year. I watched myself be born. I don't recommend that for anyone. Childbirth might be a miracle, but it's gross. I saw myself being breastfed. I watched my father holding me for the very first time. <laughs> he had this worried look on his face like he thought he was going to accidentally break me or something. He was smiling, though, and I could feel the loving warmth of his soul as he gently kissed me on the forehead with tears in his eyes. I admit, I cried here, too. There was a door for every day of my life. I didn't go through each and every one. I kind of wish I did, though. I moved on to my first steps. My parents were so proud. I could sense their amazement. At the same time, I could sense my own amazement. This life they created was evolving. And even though I was tiny, and those first steps were tiny, they were monumental. It's weird how such a giant moment gets lost with time. Nobody ever stops to think about what their first steps must have been like. Like, it becomes ordinary. You learn to walk, and you take it for granted for the rest of your life. I looked in on my first day of kindergarten. It was amazing. I felt fear and anxiety as my mother walked me into the building. I felt amazement at seeing the classroom for the first time. My name at a table next to another kid's. The school had a peculiar smell. It wasn't something familiar, but it was somehow not foreign either. It was comforting, and it made me feel safe. Everything I was witnessing and reliving 
was seen through both my eyes as a child and my eyes as a grown man. Imagine reliving your first day of school with a lifetime of knowledge, but still experiencing the same sense of whimsy and wonder. It might seem impossible to comprehend, but there's no other way of describing it. I wandered through bits and pieces of my first grade year, my sixth grade birthday party, five kids at the bowling alley, and three of them gave me slinkies. Tommy gave me a card with five dollars in it. Thanks, Grandma. Billy gave me a G.I. Joe, easily the best present I got that day. I got no strikes, but the cake was good. I skipped second and third grade and wandered around my fourth grade year for a little bit. That Halloween was the best. I dressed up like a ninja. My mom stuck a bicycle reflector to my chest and told me it was a power gem. She stuck one to my back and told me it was to keep cars from hitting me from behind. I guess in retrospect, the front one wasn't really a power gem. The weather was unseasonably warm, and we hit every house in a four-block radius. My big sister somehow ended up with more candy than I did, but I suppose that's just the way it goes sometimes. I watched a few days of that summer. We took a trip to the zoo, four hours away. It was incredible. The lions, the tigers, the penguins. <laughs> Bet you thought I was going to say bears. Oh my, how you were wrong, though. The car ride was fun for a while, but it became torturously boring after the first hour. Snacks were boring, the radio was boring, the interstate was boring. I had my trusty G.I. Joe, but even he seemed bored. Skipping ahead to the eighth grade, I watched myself fail a math test. My teacher was awesome, even if my grades weren't. Mr. Greenthumb, we always called him. I don't remember his real name, but I'm sure it was there somewhere in those seemingly endless credits of mine. He was big and imposing. He had a shiny bald head, and he reminded me of that guy in Top Gun and the lesser-known Opportunity Knox. I relived must-see TV of my childhood. No dates specific. I was just kind of wandering around by now. Watching the first episode of Wings was fun, but it paled in comparison to watching news radio for the first time. There was Friends, Seinfeld, and Frasier as well. My mom wouldn't let me watch every episode of Seinfeld, though. I remember asking my mom why I couldn't watch a specific episode. She said because it was about masturbation. I asked her what that was, and she promptly set a dictionary down in front of me and made me look it up, with her behind me and looking over my shoulder. I still didn't know what it meant, though. Needless to say, it was a while before I actually saw the episode titled The Contest.
Skipping ahead, I witnessed the night of my senior prom. I didn't go. I sat in a friend's basement and played Silent Hill 2 instead. I got home around 3.30 the next morning. I got to school the following Monday, and all my friends told me that prom was fun. They all got home around midnight. I always thought it was funny that I stayed out later, and arguably had a better time. I graduated high school and threw up the devil horns with my right hand because my diploma was in my left. A small group of friends in my small-town class cheered. I hated high school, but graduation was one of the greatest moments of my life. I watched myself receive my acceptance letter to college. My mom was so proud of me. She hugged me tighter than she'd ever hugged me before. She told me how proud she was, and it made me feel good, but I still kinda shrugged it off because it was community college. The barrier to entry was low. I watched myself meet my first girlfriend, Caroline. We had a lot in common, and we dated for a couple of years. Her parents were religious. Very religious. To the point, they were convinced everyone was wrong about religion, except them and their church. They were concerned about my faith and upbringing. When I first met them, Caroline accidentally let slip that I was Catholic. At the time, I suppose I was. I was brought up in the capital C church anyway. Her mother immediately looked at her and said, you're not marrying a Catholic, are you? I always thought that was more funny than anything. We had only been dating for a couple of months at the time. Marriage was definitely not on my mind. I doubt it was on Caroline's either. The awkward sensation of the moment filled me with a strange nostalgic joy. I watched myself packing up that first semester. I felt sad and depressed. I felt emotionally drained and was overtaken by grief and a sense of failure. I don't know why I watched myself drop out of college. I just felt compelled to. Maybe the barrier to entry should have been slightly higher. There were several years where I had little to no accomplishments or fond memories. I relived some of those holidays, Thanksgivings, Christmases, Easters. Those were warm and comforting, but this look back on my life was becoming tiresome. I didn't bother with the later half of my twenties or the early parts of my thirties. They were unremarkable years of drifting from job to job. It was like my life had stalled early on, and I gave up, always hoping for that something big to happen. And then it did, but it came in the form of a bus, and left in the form of an ambulance. At the end of the hall was a door. It didn't have a sign, but it had a key hanging next to it. I took the key and unlocked it. It felt good to turn, to hear the gears and mechanisms inside 
lightly grinding together. I don't know what emotion I was feeling at that moment. It was a sadness and a sense of relief at the same time. It was bittersweet, happiness with unexplainable pangs of sadness reverberating through my heart. I opened the door and found a small, bookish man sitting behind a desk in a completely white room. There were only two doors in this room, one to the man's left and one to his right. I turned back, but the door I came through was no longer there. The man looked nice, pleasant and welcoming. Kindness radiated from him, and I felt safe and free from any kind of anxiety or fear. Have a seat, he said, and I did. Do you have any questions? he asked. I only had one. It was clear this was the afterlife. If there was a heaven and a hell, I would be going to one or the other. For some reason, I didn't feel worried about the thought of hell, and I wasn't particularly curious about heaven. No, my question was more simple than those concerns would allow. What next? I asked. The man took this moment to explain the pros and cons of the choice that was now being presented to me. Now, you make a decision, he said. You either go through the door on the left or the door on the right. The one on the left will take you to your final afterlife, whatever that may be. It's different for everyone, but it's generally pleasant. The one on the right will take you back to Earth. I kind of liked the idea of going back. Maybe I could change my life. Be like one of those people you see on daytime TV who have a near-death experience and come out of it with some sort of enlightened attitude. Maybe I could be a motivational speaker or something. I didn't say any of this out loud, but the man behind the desk responded as though I did. It's not like that, he said. It's more like, uh... Fresh start. Reincarnation? I asked. I always liked the idea of coming back as a house cat, or maybe a pampered pooch. Something with little to no expectations and requiring little to no ambition. Again, the man responded to my thoughts. Not quite. You will return as a different person. Conceived, born, live, die. You will be reborn the day after your death. It may be anywhere in the world, to any family, under any circumstance. You could be the next Elon Musk, or a starving serial killer in a third world country. I cringed at the thought of either of those choices. Most people, the man continued, return fairly average. You will have no recollection of your past. You will not remember your mother, father, sister, or anyone else. You may occasionally feel a strange, 
déjà vu, or have the occasional vivid dream, but all memories of your former life will be blips in your subconscious and fleeting. I sat for a moment, silently contemplating each door. A generally pleasant afterlife, or a new life, one potentially full of love and wonder, the chance to learn of joy and sorrow, to feel nostalgia before it becomes nostalgia. How many times had I been here before? I've experienced deja vu. I've had vivid dreams, haunting subconscious visions that felt real, but written off as nothing but pure imagination. How many friends were forgotten? How many parents, brothers, sisters, boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, sons, daughters? My mind was reeling. Anxiety was ballooning in my chest. My lungs felt like they were swelling up and pressure mounted. I looked at the man behind the desk. He smiled. I don't know how to describe it as anything else, and the description is probably useless anyway, but somehow it was a comforting smile. An understanding smile. And suddenly I felt better. I felt at peace once more. Without saying a word, I made up my mind and stood up. There are no bad choices here, the man said, and you have made a good one. I smiled. In my heart, I knew I was making the right choice. There was nothing left to do but go through the...